I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we've been singing with one mouth and one heart because you've brought us together. You've united us together in one spirit through Christ. And it is our desire, Father, this morning to continue to worship you, to yield to you, to allow your spirit to do in us what's necessary to continue your work in us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Accomplish your will in each believer and bring any unbeliever in this place to the point of realization. Enlighten their eyes. Draw them. Save them. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Back in the 80s, Wendy's ran an ad campaign. It was called, Where's the Beef? <laughs> in the commercial, the narrator spoke of how Wendy's single had more beef than either the Whopper or the Big Mac. He would go on to say, at Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. And <laughs> while this is going on, there are these three older ladies opining and haranguing with one particular lady, the one all the way to the right with, on the telephone saying, where's the beef? <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable and uh, memorable. And a far more serious issue, far more serious issue, with the spread of evangelicalism in churches around the world, I think one might feel compelled to ask the question, where's the fruit? Not that we sit in judgment or condemnation of other churches or other people. That is not the point. What is important, however, vitally important, is how we recognize what real salvation is and what real salvation accomplishes. It's important that we realize what real salvation is and what real salvation accomplishes. What we will notice from this passage this morning is that real union with Jesus results in a demonstration of fruitfulness. Real union with Jesus results in a demonstration of fruitfulness. The demonstration of fruitfulness is not and should not be mysterious. There should not be a need for hunting around for evidence of our union with Christ. Instead, our union with Christ should be on display. It should be regular. And here's why I say this with such fervency. Because the demonstration of our fruitfulness is the work not of us, but of God himself. This text leaves no room for any other opinion. That the fruitfulness in a Christian's life is a result of, first of all, their union with Christ himself. He is the source of fruitfulness. And secondly, the work of the vine dresser, the father who ensures fruit. So it should not be mysterious about whether you have union with Christ. For if you are united together with Christ, the evidence will be there. This text does not say, go out and perform fruit. This text says, when you are united with Christ, there will be fruit. And where there is fruit, the Father works on that branch and brings forth more fruit. And so there's a deeper union with that vine, Christ. And so there is an abundance of much fruit. That's the text. The text leaves no room for, hey, go and produce fruit now. Or someone saying, well, I don't have any fruit, but I sure am attached to the vine. There's no room in this text for that. You're either attached to the vine, and fruit is brought forth. And it's a declaration that you have real union and communion with Christ. Or you have a superficial connection with that vine. 
and there is no life, and there is no fruit, and there is a terrible, terrible end. May I use just a, a flippant phrase, this text is as serious as a heart attack. Yay, more so. Because sometimes you can come back from a heart attack. If you die without union with Christ, there's no coming back. It's final. This is such a vital passage of scripture for our meditation. This is a vital passage for the believer, and it is such a vital passage for the unbeliever. Let us consider this text, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read right now through verse 11. Jesus speaks, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus, in this analogy or parable, so to speak, this I am statement that is really parabolic or symbolic or analogous, he introduces us to four parties four parties. There's the vine. There's the vine dresser. There's the branch that bears no fruit. And there's the branch that bears fruit. Four different parties. So let's take these parties one at a time. First of all, Jesus, the faithful vine. Jesus, the faithful vine. It says it right at the beginning of this text, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Well, if something's the true vine, there must be a false vine. A sincere vine and an insincere vine. A vine that's real and a vine that's kind of fake or not right. A common theme in scripture is where man fails, Christ is victorious. This particular statement is a reflection of that type of demonstration in scripture where man fails where Israel failed as the vine Jesus succeeded and is victorious and is true in his work as the vine take a look at a number of passages with me please Psalm 80 Psalm 80 God refers to his people Israel as a vine or a vineyard in numerous passages of the Old Testament. One of those texts is here in Psalm 80. And it's very vivid. He paints this picture of taking good care of this vine that he plants. Very similar to the way he deals with Israel in Isaiah 5, speaking about how he, he took care of this vineyard. God uses this analogy in these texts. Take a look beginning in verse 9 of Psalm 80. He says, You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that 
all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The commentary here, and we're not going to get too deep into it, is God took this group of people, Israel, out of Egypt and he planted them in the land. And he, he says it's a choice vine. But things didn't go very well. Other texts of scripture confirm this in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21. The Bible says this, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? In Hosea 10, God's word says, Israel is a luxuriant, a vibrant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is, what does it say? False. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. What is he talking about pillars and altars? He's talking about setting up these temple type things for other gods here I have I've planted you in the land I've made you a choice vine you should be flowing with fruit but the more fruit you bore the greater your occupation of that land the more you started to look for satisfaction elsewhere in other gods and then the fruitfulness went away and instead of being a luxurious fruitful vine you became a barren, degenerate, wild vine. In Ezekiel 15, God uses an analogy of an unfruitful vine. And here's the gist of what he says. What do you do with a vine that bears no fruit? Can you make it into something? No. Huh. Can you use it like a peg to hang something on? No. What is it useful for then? It is useful only for fuel for the fire. That is it. An unfruitful vine is good for the fire, and that's it. And the fire makes it less useful once it burns it. Did you know that? <laughs> now it's only ash. There's nothing left. In Isaiah 5, he uses the concept of the vineyard. And remember, he talks about how he, he took good care of it, and he, he it had a press there, and he had walls around it. He, he took great care of this. And when it was time that it should bear fruit, it brought forth, I love this, stink berries. That's the, the term in the Hebrew, stink berries. Anyone want to try some stink berry tea? Anyone? You? Yeah, stink berry tea? You? God, I want to take a sip of the fruit of the vine from Israel. Ha! Stink berries, that's all I get. And Jesus said, I and the true vine. Where Israel failed, where man fails, Jesus fulfills. This is what he does. You'll remember this statement from the book of John, chapter 8. Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. I always do those things that please him. Listen, could, could you say that? Can you say that? If you can say that, stand up. We're going to throw stones at you. I don't, I don't know why no one stood up. <laughs> why didn't you stand up? Can't, you can't say that. I can't say that. I always do those things that please him. Now, Jesus didn't say that flippantly or proudly. It's just a statement of fact. Jesus was perfect in every way. He never sinned, ever. Where Israel failed, where I fail, where you fail, where the church fails, Jesus succeeds. I am the true vine. Listen, being connected to Israel will never save you. Being connected to Israel 
will never make you fruitful. It will never provide for you spiritual nourishment. However, being connected to Christ, the true vine, gives life, salvation, fruitfulness, spiritual nourishment. It gives you everything you need. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And yet, far too often, we seek our satisfaction, our nourishment, our fulfillment elsewhere. And you'll remember in this text, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the true vine. And when we're connected to him, we have life and fruit. Doesn't just start. This fruit and then there's more fruit, and then there's much fruit, which introduces us to the next party of this parable, and that is the vine dresser. God the Father, the faithful vine dresser. Take a look back in John chapter 15. I am the true, faithful, sincere. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. God the Father is the faithful vine dresser. Why are we adding the term faithful? Well, because everything he does is done in faithfulness. Everything he does is done in faithfulness. When God does something, it is done correctly. It is done fully. He never, ever leaves a task undone. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, friends. We have to know this about the vine dresser. He always does his job, which is what makes this text so sobering and freeing. The faithful vine dresser. What does he do? First of all, he removes unfruitful branches. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Look down in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned he removes unfruitful branches we'll talk more about that when we come to the third party there's a second activity that this faithful vine dresser god the father is involved in and that is this he prunes faithful branches he prunes faithful branches he prunes real branches the ones that are actually attached to Christ, that, that receive their spiritual nourishment from Christ. And because they receive their spiritual nourishment from Christ, there's fruitfulness. And so God sees that fruitfulness and says, this is a real branch. And he prunes it. Now, pruning, I'm not much of a uh, vine culturalist or a horticulturalist or any of those kinds of things. I'm not even a plant culturalist. But what I can tell you is this. There are some flowers along the side over here. I think only one of the bushes is left because we pulled some out like we thought they were weeds. Nonetheless, the little yellow ones, right? The yellow, and what they, they've got these beautiful yellow flowers on them. If, if you went out there, you might want to try this, and you started to deadhead these things, okay, you got these things, okay, this one's dying, and you took the head off of it, and you keep doing it, keep doing it, you know what's going to happen? Another little flower is going to pop out right where that one was. It's sweet. It's called deadheading. At least that's what I've heard it called. So anyway, maybe you have a better, more technical term for it than deadheading. That's what I know it as. What happens is, okay, well, it'll bring forth another flower. It'll be flowering and fruitful in that respect. Well, where a vine brings forth fruit, pruning the parts that are not necessary, what that does is it makes sure that all of the sustenance, all of the sap, so to speak, goes to the fruit instead of these extemporaneous or unfruitful pieces. God prunes. Well, it's, a, it's an image. So we take the image from the imagery, and then we put it into practice. And what does it really look like? Well, it looks like Hebrews chapter 12. Will you look at Hebrews 12 with me? We're going to come back here. So maybe you put something in John 15. And open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews 12. It's a great passage of Scripture for those of us that know Christ. If you know Christ, you're encouraged by the care of your Father. And this text gives us other terminology for the same concept, and that is pruning or discipline. Pruning or discipline. In Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
also lay aside every weight and the sin, or and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this is how chapter 12 is introduced. And just very briefly, he talks about two different things that need to be set off. Okay? First of all, every weight. These are things that are not necessarily sinful. They just weigh us down. They might be distractions, things that are not important but keep us from the main thing. And then it says, and sin, which clings so tightly to us. Well, that really is a problem, isn't it? Because that redirects us from a vibrant fellowship with God to something other than that. So this is the context. He tells us to run with endurance the race that's set before us after we weigh it, let it lay aside every weight and the sin. Okay, once that takes place, we have this other section of Scripture beginning in verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you're not dead yet. The game's not over. The race has not been finished. You're not dead. You haven't resisted to shedding of blood. Jesus, in fact, had resisted to the shedding of blood. They took his life. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that it addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the chastening of the Lord, nor be wary when you uh, are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, I've seen some. Have you? Have you seen some children not disciplined at Walmart or Shaw's or Stop and Shop or the baseball game? You've seen them. Oh, oh, doggy, please, I have to leave. I can't bear to watch this kid running his family. Why is that? Because there's no discipline. The disciplinarian is the child. You're going to do what I do, what I tell you to do. I'm going to get what I want out of you. I'll do it by screaming and yelling and asking a million times until you finally cater to me because I am the dad and you're my child. You just happen to have the wallet. So we've seen children that are not disciplined. We've seen that. We don't enjoy it. Thankfully, that's not everybody. Saved and unsaved, there are unsaved people that care enough to, to keep their children on a leash and, and give them guidelines and parameters in which they can work. We're not talking about being um, dictators and not giving them any room. You, you, you give children opportunity to make choices within boundaries, right? Well, this is good. We've seen people like that. That's good. Why do they do that? Because they care for their child. They think, listen, if I don't ever tell my child no, when they hear no somewhere, they're going to flip out and it's going to be a real problem. They're going to be able to keep a job. Or, worse, uh, should I, sometimes you think, this is a really great illustration. Should I use it? Um, I'm just going to step out on the limb here. This is a very serious matter. A young man that never hears no until he meets that young lady who says no, Oh, my goodness. What's going to happen? Well, I've never taken no for an answer before. Hopefully, hopefully that's just a misunderstanding on my part that, that a child would do that. Unfortunately, I don't, think, I don't think it is. So back to the context. What is it? Fathers discipline their children. Why? Because they care about them. They care that they turn out right and they have a... a a perspective that's appropriate and, and, a, and, a, and a trajectory in their lives that is, a, that is good and that they, they'll be able to hold a job and respect women and care for their children. That you, you, you try to foster something that, that, that's healthy. That's why fathers discipline their children. Well, verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if God doesn't prune you, if God doesn't discipline you when you are just doing whatever you feel like, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't really feel conviction. I, I can, I can do this. That's not a problem for me. Maybe you're a weak Christian. You can't t tolerate this kind of thing, but it's fine with me. I, I've got, nothing comes. Ah, ah, you might feel really good about thinking that way, but I might say to you, ah, maybe that's evidence that the, the father is just letting you do your thing because 
You're not really one of his. Is that possible? I think it's possible. We think, well, no, I live in the age of grace, dude. I can do what I want to. I can swear and I can, I can, I can be involved in illicit relationships and, and I can snort coke and I can shoot heroin. I can do all these things. It's no problem. Jesus died for me and rose again. I'm fine. Oh, and no conviction from the Spirit. The Father just lets you go on unendingly do whatever you feel like. Oh, well, I might submit to you. Possibly it's because he's not your father at all. You think your father, the devil, is going to keep you from doing that? Probably not. What does he care? He doesn't care. He has his own agenda. This is as serious as serious can be, friends. The father chastens his children. And if you don't experience the chastening of the Lord when you are wayward, it's telling you something about your relationship to the vine and about your relationship to the vine dresser. He goes on further. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live the Father of spirits and have life? Should we not respect God's work? For they, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by. You know what he's just said? When God sees his child needing some pruning, he prunes them. Why? So they'll bear more fruit if he doesn't prune you, it might be because he severed you and is gathering you up for something else. Is this not serious? This is as serious as it can be. The father's role in the life of people is first of all, he removes unfruitful branches. Secondly, he prunes faithful branches. Listen to these passages of scripture. These are normal. These are, these are passages that you're familiar with. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to conclusion at the day of Christ, to completion at the day of Christ. You know what that means? If he saved you, he's going to be working to form Christ in you. That's what he does. Whose job is it? It's his job. Does he ever fail? No. If Christ isn't being formed in you, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, I don't know. I'm just kind of a lazy. It's kind of a slacker. This isn't reflective of you. It's reflective of him. He's the vine dresser, not you. I'm not the fruit inspector. You're not the fruit inspector. He is. And if there's no work bringing you toward Christ-likeness, what does it tell you, friend? What does it tell you? It tells you the most devastating thing you can hear. It means you're not part of the vine. You don't have a part in the vine. Because God always does his work. He always does it. He does it well. He's the faithful vine dresser. Listen to this text of scripture as well. Paul prays this prayer at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. Let me ask you a question. What does pruning feel like? It's hard to answer that question, isn't it? Like, I don't think anyone's got the book on this. I've got the book. I've got the book. I've got the scriptures. He doesn't tell us exactly what it feels like. I, I can tell you it can come across, can be sickness. Not every sickness is pruning. Don't misunderstand what I said. Don't say, think something I didn't say. But sickness can be pruning. Losing your job isn't necessarily pruning, but it can be pruning. The loss of a loved one can be pruning. I think a lot of times our pruning is not external. A lot of times our pruning is right here. Man, I'm, just, I'm just frustrated. I'm irritated. I'm agitated. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm you know, all those things. You could, you could listen. I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm resentful. All those things. 
what, what is that? What's the problem here? Maybe God just is not going to give you anything satisfying while you're looking in the wrong place. You know what you say to that? Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. I don't want to find satisfaction where I shouldn't find satisfaction. I don't want that to work. I want that to fail exceedingly. Please, let me fail at finding satisfaction unless I look in the right place. Sometimes that, sometimes that's the pruning. Let me ask you a question, friend. What's been going on in your soul? Might there be some pruning going on? Where's that joy, the joy of the Lord? Where's that love? the love that comes from the Spirit who's been shed abroad in our heart. Where's the peace? The God, the peace that comes from God. God's peace, my peace, I give to you. Remember that, that peace? Where is that peace? Is it there? If not, maybe it might be because of this very text. Maybe it's because God the Father is pruning you, saying, ah, there's fruit, there's fruit here, but it's not where it needs to be. You're looking for satisfaction elsewhere. Let me, let me get you back where you need to be. What does it feel like? Well, it can feel like all kinds of things. Jesus is the true vine. God the Father is the faithful vine dresser. Now we're going to talk just for a couple of minutes about this third party back in John 15, if you'll heard there with me. The unbeliever, the unfruitful branch. John 15. The unbeliever the unfruitful branch. Now there's only one complication in this part of the passage. Let's read verse 2. Every branch, what's that say? In me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, that's a little complication, isn't it? We don't just dismiss words. Say, eh, it doesn't fit where I think, so I'm just going to skip that and move on. For this passage to make sense, we cannot, we cannot read Later New Testament theology into this statement. Saying in me here does not necessarily equate with in him later on in the epistles. It doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to be in Christ like that, that theological concept that is introduced later on in the progress of Revelation. In me was not that concept when John wrote this. Okay, So we can't just immediately, because it says in me, assume that this has some theological connection to those in him statements and in Christ statements later on. In me must, must be seen as an association with Christ. Well, that's just your opinion because like, it fits the way you want to interpret the passage. No, there's some keys to understanding it. Like, there are some keys right in this context to help us to understand that the every branch in me that he takes away is a reference to unbelievers, not someone who is literally, truly attached to the vine. What are those keys? Verse 3. Already... You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Well, how is that a key to understanding? Well, I'm going to tell you. We're in John 15, right? When did John 15 take place? Either in the upper room or probably after they left the upper room, headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus taught them in John 14 about the fact that he was, he was going to build, make a place for them in heaven. Remember that? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Remember that? Okay, so we're talking about leaving the upper room and headed off to the Garden of, of Gethsemane. What happened in the upper room? Anyone remember John 13? What's going on? Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. You remember that? Well, let's look there for a minute because that's very important to understanding this text. Take a look at John 13, beginning in verse 5. Then he, Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. He's so emphatic. I love it. None of us are like this, right? We don't ever react to anything and like go from one pole to the other, this pole, that pole. None, none of us do this. Well, Peter, Peter had a little bit of this polarishness. In the middle of verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my, my hands and my head. Here's Peter. He's like, uh, God, don't wash me. Wash everything. Well, Jesus, Jesus is so kind. I'm always impressed by Jesus' kindness. 
and patience. Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Head back to John 15. Who would betray him? Anyone? Judas? Okay, now we've got verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He's bringing them back to the imagery in the upper room when he's washing their feet. And he says, Peter, you're clean, but not every one of you is clean. There's one of you that's not. Judas is not clean. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is at least a reference, if not a direct reference, to Judas. We're not talking about someone who has a real relationship with Jesus. It's someone who has a, an association, and it's a loose association with Jesus. As we look through the Gospel of John, we notice how many times there are references to believers or disciples who are not true believers or disciples. Let's take a look. We're going to do this quickly. We're going to have some fun. Bible study. This is why we're here, right? We're here to study the Bible, to worship God. So we're going to have some Bible study. Take a look at John chapter 2. So you think John chapter 2, the first thing you think of is the, the wedding feast at Cana, right? John 2, wedding feast at Cana. Water made to wine. John 2, beginning in verse 23, is the conclusion of that section. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, listen to what it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What's more interesting is as you turn to chapter 3, our Bibles, if you have an ESV, says now, now. The Greek uses a little two-letter word, day, D-E, delta epsilon, if you want to be particular. Day, it means but. So we see the people at the end of the wedding feast at Cana. Many believed in him. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He, he knew that it was a, a, an, a superficial belief in him because they saw what he did and they thought that was, that was really amazing. Of course I'm going to believe after someone does these things. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. But, chapter 3, there was a man from the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus did entrust himself to Nicodemus. Why? Because he knew that Nicodemus, after hearing the truth of the gospel, would embrace him and believe him. He entrusted himself to Nicodemus because he knew what was in him. Not these other folks. Maybe that's sad to you. It is sad, isn't it? But what's, what's revealing is Someone being called a believer or a disciple doesn't necessarily mean they're a true believer or a true disciple. Take a look at chapter 6, John chapter 6. Now, you think John chapter 6, you're thinking, I am the bread of life, right? You're thinking of Jesus being sufficient for us and, and, and nourishing us and giving us what we need. That's what we think of when we think of John chapter 6. We also think about Jesus making some statements that we like, why did you say that? <laughs> like, if you don't eat me, you have no part in me. That, that's, a, that's a tricky little thing he said there. In other words, if you don't imbibe me, if you're not part of me, if, you don't, if, if I'm not everything for you, I don't, I don't completely satisfy you, then you obviously aren't mine. Well, some of the disciples didn't like this. Verse 60, John 6, 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? That, uh, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Who do not believe. These are, he's talking to many of his disciples. Verse 60. 
Some of you do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his, what does it say, disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a condemning statement, friends. That is not a happy statement. They no longer walked with him. Look at verse 67 now. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, listen. Having an association with Jesus does not get the job done. Oh yes, I believe Jesus. Oh yes, I'll follow Jesus. Until he says something I don't like. Until he allows something in my life that I do not like. How could a good God do that? Or allow that? You've heard people say that. They at one time maybe had a superficial relationship with God. And then something happened. And they said, no. Listen, you either believe him or you don't. That's it. You believe him or you don't. No matter what happens in your life, you either believe him or you don't. That's the bottom line. Chapter 8, please. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. You see that? Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Why is he saying that to people that believed him? Because a superficial belief is not enough. Take a look now at chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so, what does it say? Prove to be my disciples. Prove to be. Who is proving it? Well, I am, of course. I'm a very fruitful Christian. No! You missed the point! Who's the vine dresser? The Father. He's the one that prunes you so you'll bring forth fruit. Oh, that's not enough. You're attached to the true vine. That's where the source of that comes from. The Spirit enlivens us to bring forth fruit. It's not about you demonstrating how great you are to prove your discipleship. It's about God doing his work that he always does faithfully. When God faithfully works, and he always does, he works in his people, and they bring forth fruit. What is the danger of not proving yourself to be one of the disciples? What is the danger of not being proven to be one of the disciples? Well, verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Friends, we're not talking here about the refiner's fire. He's contrasting true belief with false belief. He is contrasting a loose association with him and an intimate, life-changing, life-giving, eternal union with him. This is the contrast. The danger is eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Later today, spend some time, read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Just read it. Read it. See what it has to say. Remember some of the descriptions Jesus gave concerning judgment. He says, it's the fire that shall never be quenched. He quotes Isaiah, and he says, their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. He says this in another place, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot on the line in this passage. There's a lot on the line in this passage. This is, this is tough stuff. This is life eternal or eternal death. What kind of warning is it? What is this warning supposed to do? Well, I had better go produce some fruit. And I better prove to be my uh, God's disciple. Who's responsible for fruit? Fruitfulness is the responsibility of the vine dresser. The source of fruit is the vine. He's not saying go out and produce fruit. 
He's not saying, hey, go be good people, and I want to see some love, joy, and peace in you. Go do some love, joy, and peace. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. So that's where we turn to the last party that's addressed. First we have Jesus, the faithful vine. We have God the Father, the faithful vine dresser. We have the unbeliever, the unfruitful branch. Now we have, fourthly, the believer, the fruitful branch. What is the believer told to do in order to bear fruit? What is he told to do? There it is. You already know the answer. Case dismissed. Verse 4. Abide in me. And when that's happening, I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. In other words, I am the source. I am everything that you need. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The, the only thing we're told to do is abide in him. Whoever abides in me and I in him. It, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. Abide in him. You'll bear what? Much fruit. That's it. I was wrestling with something. I gotta, I gotta wrap this up. I wish you guys didn't want to go home. I was wrestling with something. I'm gonna use an illustration. You can judge me all you want. Seriously, just do what you need to. I remember in my college days, I, you know, I, did, I was doing my college stuff and I was working so I could get through college. And I, and I used to drive my little yellow Mercedes-Benz diesel that my father changed the plate to, to the, the, the little thing on the back to make it look like it's a newer one and it was really an older one. And I used to drive for a place called Stakeout. Now, Stakeout had some great steaks. I used to deliver steak and potatoes and stuff to people in a roll. It's great. So I'd be driving around doing my thing, and I, I had the conviction you know, to drive the speed limit and stuff. Now, listen, if you have to make some money, the faster you get to someone's house to make the delivery, the faster you get back to stakeout to get the next delivery, to go back out to the next delivery. So I have these wrestling matches all day long. We're like, oh, I'm just going to pretend like I don't know God today. I'm not, I don't think it's funny. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just, I don't think it's funny. I'm going to pretend like I don't know God. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to be convicted about doing this. I need the money. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to do it. I'm going to drive, driving, speeding. And then partway through the night, I'd be like, you idiot. What are you doing? You're such a fool. Who are you trusting in? What's my point? It's not, it's not about me. If there's question in your life, if you don't know where you stand, I want to, I want to put a challenge. And this is, I don't know if you've ever heard this in church before. So, again, I hope that I'm not doing the wrong thing here. I want to challenge you. you don't, you're not positive about your relationship with Christ. Hey, let's try this. Ignore him this week. Just ignore him. Pretend he doesn't exist. See if he knocks on your head. I'm right here. And here's what I would submit to you. If he doesn't ever talk, like, say, hey, pal, hey, sweetheart, he's not going to say that. I'm right here. What are you doing? If there's no conviction from him, I'm thinking you might want to rethink what your responsibilities are right now. From, hey, I, I really need to do this Christian life thing to, I guess maybe, I don't know that I've even embraced Christ. If he is this life and satisfaction of the soul of the believer, and the Father, the vine dresser, prunes us, you can't go day in and day out just acting like he's not there. So if you can do that, it's time to recognize your desperate plight of life that really is only in loose association with him and not in vital union with him. On the other hand, if he keeps saying, what are you doing? Not in an audible voice. I'm talking to you. You just know in your heart that something's wrong. This isn't good to do this. What you do is, dear God, here I am. I'm trying to, trying to live my life on my own. I've got my own agenda here, and, and it's not working out. Help me to abide in Christ. Help me to abide in Christ. I think you might find some things in this little challenge that may be foolhardy to, to issue. Later in this text, abiding in Christ is equated with abiding in his word. You know what that means? You can't say, I abide in Christ and pay no attention to his word. You can't say that. 
To abide in him is to abide in his word. To abide in his word is to abide in him. The, the word takes root and changes us. To abide in Christ is equated to abiding in the word. When the believer abides in Christ, there's a demonstration of fruit. What is this fruit? What does this fruit look like? Here, here's the, always the answer to every one of these questions. What does fruit look like? Here's the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It's always this way, every day, all day. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is always to demonstrate more and more of the life and character of God in this life. It's always to reflect him in this life. So the fruit spoken of here isn't more souls for the kingdom, though it's wonderful when souls come to the kingdom. The fruit he's talking about is a demonstration of God's character in my life today. That's the fruit. That's the fruit. People need to see God's character. It's the whole substance of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now the progression, progression in this passage is from fruit to more fruit to much fruit. How does this take place? The Father's work as vine dresser. That's how it takes place. He prunes us. The results are more. The result is more fruit. Jesus, as the vine, his work as the vine is that he's the source of fruit. In our communion with him, it results in much fruit. The alternative to abiding in Christ that results in more fruit is what? Abiding in me. And less fruit, or no fruit, really, till the Father says, hey, this way. And we're redirected to abiding in Christ again. Who is doing all this work? Who is doing the work, guys? God is. The Christian life is about God. Salvation, God. Sanctification, God. Glorification, God. The Bible, it's about God. Church, it's about God. Songs, about God. Same theme every week. God does his work in us. Remember this, it is God who produces spiritual fruit in our lives. This work of God demonstrates itself in action on our part. This is important. God's working in us demonstrates itself, demonstrates itself in action in our lives. That can be difficult to distinguish whether God is doing it or I'm doing it. What I mean by that is, when God's grace is operational in my life, I will be doing something. Listen to what it says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure.